1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. And we're going to look at just two verses as we get ready to look at the table of the Lord. Verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. And so really now for a year and a half, I've been here now a year and a half, and we've been taking all of that time to go through this first letter of Paul to the church, really through Timothy to the church at Ephesus. And what we've entitled it is that we are the church. We are the church. And the question or the way we've been doing it is how God's people live life. It's been something all my life I've really, really wanted to know for me personally. I want to know how we're supposed to live life. I I grew up in a world, and I I don't want to do this, where we play religion or we play moralism. In fact, I heard a good friend of mine, the guy that took over my last ministry, heard him preach, and he said something that I thought was very bold and amazing for him to say. If, if the church is more, nothing more than a social club, it is the worst of choices that you could make. It really is. It's a dangerous thing to just say, we're just going to hang out at church and make it a social event. Church is meant to be so much more than that. We want to know how the gospel changes us. And I would say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul just declares how the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. So that church is not religion. It's not moralism. It's not even deism. All right? A lot of people in the world today will say, oh, I believe in God. But then when you talk to them, their version of God is actually slightly probably less than themselves because they're actually God and the God they've created has to bow down to them. And so I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord, church, where Paul writes to Timothy and says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. Now, if you write in your Bible, and it's okay to do that, highlight that word bondservants and maybe somewhere in a margin somewhere, write this word, slave The Greek word here is doulos, and it actually means slave, all right? He says, let all who are under a yoke as slaves, bondservants, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And then he tells you why. That's a radical statement. And then he says why. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This is what he says. He goes a step further. He goes, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So that's his declarative statement. Now here's his reasoning. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now you don't have to put up your hands, but how many of you ever have worked for someone above you and they've been a Christian and now you work for them and do you realize that Paul says they benefit by your good service because you're fellow believers and they're supposed to be beloved. As I go over my years of history and those I've had both over me and under me, this was a profound statement. And I would say, may God have his blessing on the reading of his word. And all the people said, that was better. All right. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I knew this was coming, <laughs> much of 1 Timothy has proven to be much harder for me to preach than I ever thought or imagined. Because what do you do with a passage like this one? Further, is there a right way to understand and apply this short little passage to our lives here in 21st century St. John's, Newfoundland, especially considering we're here to observe the table of the Lord? 
And as I've told you in the word bondservant there, what do you do with a word like slave? How do you define the word? What mental images come to mind when you hear the word? And we are all, every person both here and those that are gathered downstairs, every one of us are both products and victims of our culture. Whether you and I want to admit it or not, we are both a product of our culture and in some regards we're a victim in our culture. And here and now, in our time, the church, the church corporate, the church in Canada, the church in the United States is wrestling with things like race and bigotry and the mistreatment of people based on race and social status, and dare I say even sexual choice and more. And every day we all make snap decisions about people. Every one of us, yes, even here in this room, we all do it. We all make snap decisions about people that we encounter in the culture. But how? How does Jesus show us a different way? How should a church of real Jesus followers see the world and everyone in it? How are you and I supposed to leave here today and this afternoon into tomorrow and how are we supposed to talk to people and walk through life with people and act with people and treat people and live and share life with those who are Christians and those who are not Christians? Not only that, but how should we be modeling Christianity to our kids If you're here this morning and you are a parent or you are a grandparent or you're an aunt or an uncle or you have nieces and nephews or you have cousins or you have somebody in your life that you influence that are younger than you, what are they learning from us about Jesus and about the world? About how to live and act and talk and treat those around them? You see, what are the young people of this church, the young people in your neighborhoods, the young people that you have influence over, what what do they see? What do we do when we are treated poorly? By the culture. When people, even the culture, disagree with us, are we simply complainers? Do we just whine and complain all the time? Do they hear us talking in condemnation and judgment of others all the time or some of the time or any of the time? As if with the old adage, are we always trying to be right at the top of our lungs? Or are we actually Christ-like? You see, church, Calvary Baptist Church, and all of our visitors, you need to be assured that one thing, the world is watching. Our children are watching us, and they're making decisions every moment about God, about Jesus, about the church, and about the Bible. And in this passage, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we not only learn about ourselves and about Jesus and the gospel, but I believe more importantly and most importantly, we learn from the example of Christ, ready for this, the power of the gospel and the hope of the gospel. And let me invite every one of you here, if you'll take the time this morning to get ready for this table and embrace this teaching and to believe in it and to trust in it and to live by it, that today... Not only will this table, not only will this service, not only will your life and my life and the lives of everyone around us, your family, be deepened and given hope and given purpose and be given resolve like never before. Now, I said to you about the Robert Murray McShane reading list. Well, I was on Monday or Tuesday this last week. We were called to read Isaiah 61, and I even posted about it on Facebook. And some of you said that certain chapters of Isaiah were your favorites 
But on Isaiah 61, I read the first three verses of that chapter, and I have to be honest, I got caught up in a rabbit trail. I got caught up in these verses, and I had to go find out more. And Ray Ortland Jr., I think, in his opening remarks of his commentary on Isaiah 61, does a wonderful job of setting up and giving the context, I believe, of 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Listen to what he says. One of the marks of the early Christians was their joy in God as they lived in a hard world. <laughs> Is that us? Would, would one of the marks of you and I and of us be how we have the joy of God as we live in a hard world? Would that be us? According to one archaeologist, he says, apartment buildings in ancient Rome were so shoddily built that the city was constantly filled with the noise of buildings collapsing or being torn down to prevent it. And the tenants of an apartment building lived in constant expectations of it coming down on their heads. That was normal. This was the setting in which the Roman Christians raised their families. The classical world and all your classical literature and all those great classical uh, movies, don't get it right. It was not all gleaming marble and flowing white togas and sumptuous banquets. Oh, that might have been for the very exclusive few. But the reality is first century Rome was messy. The streets of Rome were deepest darkness at nightfall. There was no medical care as we know it, no inoculations for children, no retirement benefits, no air conditioning, no refrigeration. But the early Christians living in that world stood out because God gave them a gift from beyond the world. Are you ready for this? Orland Jr. says, overflowing acceptance through the cross. God's presence in their hearts practical wisdom for daily life, and endless enjoyment of Him in heaven. Isn't that enough to make people happy? <laughs> Literally, that you know how that sounded? I got, <laughs> amen, amen. You, you see what I'm talking about? Where's the joy of the Lord even in a hard place? They thought so. He says, just telling people to be happy won't work. Ta-da! Uh, that's annoying. Ooh. But the gospel doesn't do that. It gives us hope beyond everything that beats us down. The Apostle Paul, are you ready for this? He called it joy inexpressible and filled with glory in 1 Peter 1.8. That is Christ's gift to the world today. His mission is to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to comfort all who mourn, and anoint them with gladness, so that the Lord may be glorified, and He has made us partners with Him in that mission. That's your mission and mine. It is to go and tell people, Jesus lived so that you and I can live. That's the message. And in 1 Timothy 6, in two verses, Paul is dealing with, actually, a group of Christians on a subject matter that everybody knows about and almost nobody talks about. Are you ready? The number one sin of the world since the beginning. Pride. Pride. This is what he's talking about. Pride is the sin that has been the downfall of creation. Pride. 
whether it be Satan, who is personified in Isaiah 14, who was called Lucifer, the morning star, and he looked at himself and saw how beautiful he was, and he said, I will be like God. And that was his downfall. Or Adam and Eve, who for pride's sake were both tricked and willfully chose to put their wants and desires for knowledge above God's ways. And if you think about it, church, what happened in both cases? Now think this through. Lucifer, the archangel, who was beautiful and powerful, was created to serve God and worship God and adore God and do and to do God's will. In some ways, you might say that Lucifer was a slave to God. Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, walked in the coolness of the day with God, yet... God gave them instructions. God was an authority over them. They were given commands and purposes and goals. They too were slaves to God. But when they both chose pride over trust, when they chose pride over or so-called freedom of their will to the will of God, where and to what did it lead? It wasn't to freedom. It wasn't even to joy. It certainly wasn't to happily ever, to living happily ever after. No, it actually only led to slavery of another kind. They became slaves to themselves, slaves to sin. And for Adam and Eve, they became slaves even to Satan and ultimately slaves to death. You see, this is what Paul means in Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 15. This is a verse that if you've been around church, you probably know. But let me give you the context of the verse that so often we rip out and flick out like a marble. Make sure you get everything. In verse 15 of Romans 6, Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under, not under law but under grace? So in other words, if Jesus is all that, are we supposed to just sin now whichever way we want because that explains or explodes more of grace? And he says, by no means. The old King James says, God forbid. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. No, no, but thanks be to God. What's he giving thanks be? That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And notice, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, Paul says, look, I get, I'm speaking in human terms. Because of your natural limitations, it's hard to wrap our minds around these things. But he says, but just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, just look around your world. If you want to see a group of people going from bad to worse and from worse to worser in Newfoundlandese, all right? But he says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now here's the context of this verse. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life, notice, in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is what you and I get. So again, I want to ask us this question. If you are a Christian, and you're here this morning and say, Pastor I'm a Christian, and I know what it means to be a Christian, then if you want to write this down and spend some time this week answering this question, then if you're a Christian and you know what it means to be a Christian, then how has your life changed since you've met Jesus? How has your life changed? How does knowing Jesus make a difference in the way you and I see life and see people and who we are living for? You see, again, whom to whom do we owe our allegiance and our trust? The psalmist said in Psalm 121, right? I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I mean, really, when life is really throwing you a curveball, where does your help come from? Or maybe, maybe for this audience, when life is good, where does your help come from? When you've got money in the bank and a job and you've got a car and a house and maybe a girlfriend or boyfriend or a spouse or friends or whatever, do you, do, you, do you then say, you know what, God, you're like that fire hydrant hose that's the high, in the hospital, break glass in case of emergency? Or is Jesus a part of who you are every day? I look to the hills from which comes my help. My help comes from the Lord. You see, a Christian embraces the call to be a slave to Christ. Why? Well, we've just answered it. God created us. He sent His Son to save us. Now, listen to another famous word, verse, John 3.16. Here's another. Whenever you quote 3.16, please do yourselves a favor and go to 17 and 18 as well. For God so loved the world. Amen? Everybody knows that part. That He gave us His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But did you know that God, John tells us, here's the mission. Jesus tells Nicodemus the mission. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus was sent, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's why Jesus was sent. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see, Jesus didn't need to be sent to condemn the world. It's already condemned. That's why I I love how the world often plays out Jesus things and they don't even know it. Look at the modern fascination with zombies. This kills me. The walking dead. Alive but dead. What do you think anybody is who doesn't know Jesus? The walking dead. You're alive but don't know Jesus. And Paul, Jesus says, I have come to tell people how to have life and to have it more abundantly. Don't settle for being a spiritual zombie. Know me, he says. And if you know me, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But if you don't believe, he's condemned already. And why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so before we jump into this passage, let's also be sure that we know that if I can, in our modern vernacular, that Paul here and the Bible does not for one second endorse slavery. I want to make that abundantly clear. The Bible never has been for slavery. Never has been. 
when we use this word, we're thinking in terms, when, whenever you're, you're th- hearing the word slavery, the Bible has never been for it when you are thinking in terms of other human beings being godlike figures over other human beings. That has been expressly denied in Scripture. Starting all the way back in Genesis 1.27, where we're told that we are all, male and female, every one of us, made in the image of God. We've already seen in Romans, the Bible tells us that we are all sinners. It doesn't matter if you're the best sinner or the worst sinner. We are all sinners. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. Doesn't matter your outlook on life. Doesn't matter your socioeconomic, anything. We are all sinners. God loves every human being he has created equally. Amen? That was good. That was the best yet. According to Revelation, the gospel is offered to all all tribes, tongues, and nations. But you know, even as I say this, this is not representative of the world we live in. Let's put this into some focus. Because of sin, everything changed. And I mean everything. Including, and most importantly, and tragically, the heart of of all mankind. We have become proud and we have wanted to be God ever since. That's just the facts. Now, how does the Bible and how does the Word of God and the Gospel tell us to do and live life in light of all of this sin? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew nation was to see slavery in terms of servanthood. It was a means to provide for the poor and destitute. Look, at, uh, look up, if you want to write down Leviticus chapter 25, 35 to 43. Moses tells this to the nation of Israel. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee, which was every seventh year and then every seven sevens. There was a special ceremony by which God freed everybody in the nation. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. And here's why. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, and they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Now, that's the Old Testament. If you fast forward into the New Testament, there was Roman slavery. Now, how do we look at Roman slavery, which is what is being talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. In the first century Rome, slavery had some of its bad points. In some cases, slaves were considered property, and even Aristotle talked about them as tools, as if they were inanimate objects or non-human. 
but it's not the form of slavery we likely see in our minds. Up until in the first century, commentators and historians tell us for anywhere from a fifth to up to half of the nation were slaves in first century Rome. Probably and likely because of slave rebellion, those of you that have watched that movie Spartacus and others in, in the early before Christ was born and in, in, in leading up to that hundred years be leading up to that, there was all kinds of slave rebellions and I might add the birth of the church and slavery was tra- changing rapidly. A slave could be just about anything in first century life. In fact, many preferred it to freedom because you could make a much better living. Byron Chapel tells us, We also must understand that being a slave did not indicate one's social status in the first century. Slaves were regularly accorded the social status of their owners. From outward appearance, it was unusually impossible to distinguish a slave from free persons. Slavery was often preferred. A slave could be a custodian, a merchant, a CEO, and even a government official. Many slaves lived separate from their owners. Finally, selling oneself into slavery was commonly used as a means of gaining Roman citizenship and gaining entrance into society. Now, there was, of course, the modern slavery that you and I know of. But this Bible, the Bible that I'm reading from, the Bible that you have, squarely condemns And the word also, and in Paul's day, the Bible firmly condemns slave trade or viewing human beings as property. That was never condoned in the Bible, never tolerated. In fact, if you want the proof of it, just go back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul talks about it even before he gets to chapter 6. In chapter 1, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. That means slave traders. That's what that word means. So Paul says, slave traders, that's not godly. That is not gospel. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul's not endorsing slavery. The Bible doesn't, and in fact, it provides for, protects, and calls for the end of slavery. In in fact, we all become, in place of this, we all become slaves of Christ. If you look at that, you can find it in the consummation of Revelation. But... All right, so I've laid that out, and I put that to bed, I hope. But how do you live a Christian life in a sinful, fallen world? And Paul's answer would be, the gospel changes everything. So very quickly, as we come to the table of number one, verse one, the gospel changes your view of the world. The gospel changes your view of the world. Now, you'll notice, because he says, if any of you are, for all of you who are under a yoke of a bondservant or slave. Now, when you read this, you got to be honest. Your mind will automatically go to places. Mine did. It went to movies and, and words and experiences and stories I've heard of and read. In fact, I, I once watched a short documentary on the translation of the Bible I'm using, the ESV Study Bible, as they struggled over the right use of the word doulos. And because of it, there was a group of American translators and a group of English translators. And because of the slave movement, some were very hesitant to use the word slave because of all the negative imagery it would conjure up in a society of Western culture. And so they chose to use the word servant instead of slave. But make no mistake about it, the word doulos means slave. That's what it means. 
And so for us, bridging the gap of almost 2,100 years, these verses apply to all of us who have ever had a job. In fact, how many of you heard the old slang expression, I'm working for the man? You know, I'm working for the man. You know, that type of thing. Or how many of you have ever had this, I'm a slave to my job? Or he or she treats me like a slave. I slave at work. I'm trapped in my job. I can't leave my job. They own me or it owns me. Plus, I don't know about you, but I can personally relate hardcore to what Paul's talking about here. Because notice in our passage, he says, if you are under a yoke as bondservants. Now, again, you don't have to speak out loud here. Well, actually, you don't speak out loud very well anyway. But, um, you know, have you ever felt the burden of working for someone who is not a Christian and you've just felt the weight of work? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that work? Try to live out your Christian life if your boss hates God, hates church, hates Christians, hates religion, or all of the above. Try having a boss who is selfish, covers their own butt at your expense. How about a boss that wants you to do all the work while they take all the credit? Sound familiar? How about a boss that shows favoritism, is demanding, is critical, and a complainer? Someone who loves to tell you what you've done wrong but hates to give you a compliment. Have you ever had an Eeyore for a boss? I've had all of the above. Not to mention the morality or lack thereof. What about the language at work sometimes, the off-color jokes? What about the situation ethics of honesty or quitting time or reporting? I've had bosses who are cheating on their wives. I've had a boss who was stealing and dishonest. I've had a boss who was practicing homosexuality. I've had a boss who was an alcoholic. I had a boss who was a drug addict. I've had multiple bosses who've had anger issues. But let me ask you this. Ever worked for someone or had a friendship with someone, no matter how hard you tried, you just felt you never did enough? There were those who just smiled at you and then mistreated you? And on and on and on it goes, right? Have you lived any of those things? Have you experienced any of those things? I've experienced that in just about every job I've ever had. And yet Paul says... <laughs> Paul says, because of Jesus, because of the gospel, love them, pray for them, serve them, honor them, show them how Jesus had made a difference in your life. There's some Monday morning mantra for you, isn't it? Go to work tomorrow and just love on your boss. Show them how Christ has made a difference. How do you do this? By the way, we speak. By the way we live, the way we treat our boss, the way we work for the company, the way we treat our fellow co-workers. Do you know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.3? 3? He said this, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, look at this, written not with ink, but with the, same, with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. How you and I go to work, even for a boss that's not easy to serve, even for a boss that's not easy to get along with, even for a boss that mistreats us, if we just go in and we've got to... Listen, I will tell you, you know what irritates people the most is when your life should suck and you're still singing. The world can't stand it because they can't make sense of it. I'm reading a book right now by John MacArthur called Slave. Steve's been hearing from me about it all week. I haven't been able to put it down. And one of the things of the Christians, the martyrs, you know what they would do? They would simply say, I am a Christian. As they were tortured and as they were threatened, they would say, who are you? And I am a Christian. As they would burn at the stake, I am a Christian. 
because they wanted to be identified with Christ, and it didn't no matter what their lot was in life, they had the joy of the Lord. Now, that's not some weird masochism. It's not that we don't despair. It's not that we don't have these issues, but it's that, you know what? No matter what you do to me, this life is temporary, and I live for something eternal, and God's made a difference in my life. The Christian is to treat his employer with full respect. Now, what does that mean? It means doing an honest day's work. It means going the second mile, not backbiting or helping, uh, uh, not backbiting. It means helping other employees develop a team spirit, being positive, not coming in late or leaving early or taking longer breaks or lunch hours than are permitted. In short, full respect means allow the fruit of the spirit to be in your work relationships. Would, would I go to any of your bosses and say, describe Mr. X or Mrs. X? Would they say, listen, man, I'll tell you one thing. They've got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is that how you and I would be described? Remember that what the Christian, Christians, they were full of joy in a hard place. Full of joy in a hard place. Kent Hughes tells this account. You see, how we work is a reflection on God, Christ, and the gospel. A man once told me, if someone told me they were a Christian, he asked them about their view of life in the church. And I asked him why. And he said this. I asked him, Steve, he said, I can, one question he would ask them, are you a happy Christian? And then he said, because I found out that a miserable Christian was the worst type of employee. Kent Hughes says, I once had an employer tell me that he had become skeptical about Christians because of his experience with two theological students who seemed to be always standing around talking about God during work hours. But what really did it in was when the boss observed one of them going into the restroom for 20 minutes, and when the employee emerged, he heard him whisper to his fellow student, I just had the most wonderful time. I read three chapters of the Gospel of John. Now, this is why I'm telling you the story, because I love this line. Three chapters of John in the John on the John on the boss's time. Pleases neither God nor man. You're on the boss's time. Colossians 3.22 says, bond servants. It's another word again. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, notice this. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul reminds Titus of this. And so, not only does the gospel change your view of the world, but the gospel changes your view of what's important. The gospel changes your view of what's important. Notice the second half of verse 1. Why? Why would you and I allow someone who isn't saved, doesn't believe in Jesus, even is actually against Jesus, to be honored, loved, and served well, no matter how they treat you? Why would you do that? Paul says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This is what Philippians 1.21 really means. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But you know what? Few of us are going to have to die for gain. But what about for me to live is Christ and to lose a promotion is gain? Or for me to live is Christ and to not be popular at work is gain? 
Or for me to live as Christ and not always demand things. I remember my father worked this. Now, I know I'm treading in maybe some dangers here. My father worked for the phone company for years before he ever became a pastor. And the phone company here in Newfoundland went on strike for nine months. And my dad did not believe that it was his Christian duty to go and strike against his company. And so he went to the union and he told them about his belief. And he went to his bosses and he offered. And they said, listen, Wayne, if you cross the picket line, you're dead. Like, I mean, you are dead to everybody. And dad said, guys, listen, I love everybody. I respect everybody. You can keep all of my strike pay. You can keep everything. I will give it all to those that do everything. He did everything he could. And at the end of it, the management told him not to come in. But my father would not go walk the picket line. And I will tell you, he was unpopular for a while. But my mom and, dad, mom and dad would make dinners and stuff like that and bring it down to the picket line and serve those that, that strike. And then he would go and he would talk to the managers and he would call in and he'd check on them and tell them that he was praying for them. And through nine months, we lost everything. And by the way, ate at Ponderosa so much, I'm sick of it. Because God took care of us. And when the strike was over, how many people went to my dad and said, Wayne, I don't respect, I, I, I don't like what you did, but I respect how you stood for Jesus and you're okay in my books. Now, dad risked a lot of stuff. He was called a lot of names, but he decided to stand for Jesus. He decided to stand for Jesus, that the word of God not be reviled, the name of God would be glorified. Listen, when you and I act as slaves for Christ, when we, we have an immediate impact on those around us, and I need you to understand that the greater purpose that Paul is pointing out for all of us to see is that Christianity's chief end is not social reform, but rather personal redemption. We are not called to change the culture through social reform. We're called to overwhelm the culture with redemption. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, when Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, here's the question. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So folks, listen, we live in a world, now we live in a democracy where we can take a stand for things and we should tell people what our belief systems are and all these types of things. But listen, if we get the Canadian government to reverse its view on abortion, that would be wonderful, but it doesn't save people. And if we want people to truly live forever with Christ, we want them to get saved. If we want, the, we, we want this government to overturn abortion for godly reasons, it's let's get so many people saved that it becomes the outflow of Christian living. Okay? Now, it's not that we don't stand against it. It is. Abortion is murder. It is. But just changing the social conscience of everybody doesn't mean anybody's going to heaven. And we got to realize that. The great, if you want to know how this church and how the, early, when the people that you and I admire and the people that did great things in the Reformation and all of these things, and William Wilberforce and all these people that did, it wasn't because they just became great social gurus. It's because they lived out the gospel in every way of their lives. You and I are called to live and work in this world, in this culture, being as obedient as we can be, and in so doing, be soft and approachable and honest, having integrity and honor towards gods and others. We must be reflectors of Christ, and in so doing, we bring honor and glory to God. And they, then we'll see the power of the gospel change the world around us. 
Thirdly, the gospel changes your view of other Christians. And I think this should be obvious, isn't it? But see, Paul is dealing with what would be a growing new relationship. This had never happened before in the history of the church. You had slaves who were getting saved, and their masters were getting saved. Now what do you do? Now what do you do? Remember in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer? He's about to take his own life, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas say to him, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You know what that means? His entire household likely means, again, servants and everybody. All believed in Jesus. Now all of a sudden, they're all Christians. The Philippian jailer went to work that day, a complete pagan. The next day, a believer in Jesus, along with all of his house. How did that affect everything? What was the conversation like with the Philippian jailer and the prisoners on Tuesday? When Paul and Silas are singing, there's an earthquake, everybody stays, only Paul and Silas leave, all the other prisoners are still prisoners, and he comes back the next day. Did he lead them all in prayer meeting? Who knows? But it affected everything. Now, what you need to understand, in 1 Corinthians 7, we get another bit of an insight because some Christians thought that now that they were Christians, that meant they could take marriage and throw it out the window. And so there they thought, well, now I'm a Christian, so I don't need to be married. And marriage is... And Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, now that you're all Christians, everything's changed. The gospel makes it even more radical because now you're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now you're family. You're not just strangers. You're not just co-workers. Now you're family. Christians who work for Christians should display, best display the gospel ever. Christians who employ Christians should be the best display of the gospel ever. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 6. Bond servants, there's that word again for slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, don't be, don't be sucking up. Don't be doing that stuff. But as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Why? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Now notice this, masters... Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with them. Hmm. Folks, listen, I used to be, before I was a pastor, I ran a large retail company. I had at one point as many as 77 different employees. And of course, I, I attended church. Church has always been a part of my life. And there was a lot of times that folks from my church would come to me and want want me to hire them. And I would. And I'll be honest, it was one of the most challenging areas of my life because this was not the case. Often I would hire Christians and they'd be lazy, disrespectful, try to take advantage of me because they knew me. Instead of being models of work and coming, they'd push the limits of when they came in. They'd leave a little bit early and, you know, look at me and wink like, oh, Steve. And I remember the heart, one of the hardest things I ever do, I had to fire Christians. You know how hard that is? I had to high, fire a guy and then sing next to him at the, in the choir that Sunday. That made for awkwardness, even more than your awkward amens. That made for awkward living. 
Christians should treat other Christians as family, with love, respect, going even further. And now you know, number four, the gospel changes your view of what's eternal. Paul finishes in verse 2, and notice what he says, Rather, they must serve all the better. Why? Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. When you and I are Christians, we are so changed by the gospel that we now see that our actions have eternal results. That's what the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is all about. Be ye therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is the power of the gospel. You and I are called to be slaves to Christ. To be owned by Christ is to make the best servants of others. Even more so Christians. And think about life. Isn't marriage all about servanthood? A Christian man who commits to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5.25, commits his whole being to elevate servitude for perhaps 50 or 60 years. A Christian man is he never so elevated as when he serves his wife. Being a wife, isn't that servanthood? By loving the imperfect man that she is married to in a thousand day-in, day-out ways, she's serving God. Isn't family servanthood? Parenting is sacrifice personified, isn't it? It means giving all you have in order to see your children grow into spiritual maturity. It's giving and giving and giving, just like God our Father gives. Isn't growing up kids servanthood? Obeying one's parents and lovingly trying to please them? Even when you honestly believe that you more know more than they do? Because you've lived all of like 18 years? Isn't the workplace servanthood? Being an employee is servanthood. Giving the best hours of your day to an educational or corporate enterprise or government or business. Being an employer rightly understood is servanthood too. You serve those under you with a heart for their success. They're not tools. They're human beings made in the image of God and you've been entrusted to do everything for them. True servanthood is Christ-centered. It leads us to Christ and makes us like Christ. Now, as we come to the table of the Lord, let me, and if you have a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 2, and as we come to the table of the Lord, let's see if this now has a new set of meanings for you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind. Where's your mind? What kind of mindset do you have when it comes to your spouse, your family, your children, your your extended family, your employees, your employer, your neighborhood, your co-workers? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here's the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself Notice this, by taking the form of a servant, that word servant is doulos. Again, if you want, by taking the form of a slave, he became his own creation. The creator became his own creation. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because that was the will of the Father. And when you, when you allow yourself to be a slave to God, when you say, Lord, you take me. You, is there a better master? 
Is there anyone that would provide for you more, love you more, sacrifice for you more, care for you more, have your best interest at, at heart more? Nobody. Because he says, look, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When you humble yourself and you say, Lord, I'll be your slave, do you know what your master will do? He will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Every human being that has ever tried to lift himself up only ends up in ruin. But when you look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, you'll be able to say, I am a Christian and it'll mean something. I hope and pray that tomorrow when you go to work, it means something to be a Christian. The way you talk, the way you act, the way you treat people. Go in early. Have the joy of the Lord inexpressible. Work hard. And know that everything you do for your king counts for eternity. Not one thing you do for Christ, not one will be missed. And know the joy of being lifted up by God the Father. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to proclaim your word as we now come to the table of the Lord. And I pray if anyone is here this morning and they know about you, they know of you, but they don't know you, oh God, that you would make yourself known. Lord, as we now come to the table of the Lord, may we not play religion. May we not act like we've got it all together. But Lord, we'd say that we want to be slaves of Christ. And the gospel has changed us. It changes the way we treat our spouse, the way we treat our mom and dad, the way we treat our brothers and sisters, our aunts, our uncles, our nieces, our nephews. It changes the way we treat our neighbors. It changes the way we treat our boss or our manager or our supervisor. It changes the way we lead. It changes the way we spend our money. It changes the way we see the guy who cuts us off on the highway. It changes the way we see each other here when we fail each other. Lord, are we loving each other like we were just commanded in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2? Lord, as we come to this table, may we now find hope, conviction, confession, assurance, redemption, instruction, even discipline and rebuke because it's safe to come before God when He's our Father. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.